Good morning again, everyone. It's great to see you in worship today. I'd like to offer a special welcome to those of you in the traditional service or those of you joining us online. It's good for us to study the Word of God together as a church family, even though we're worshiping in different places and different styles. If you're new to First Lutheran, this morning we are wrapping up our summer sermon series on the book of Isaiah. For the last 11 weeks, we've been journeying through one of the great major prophets of the Old Testament and seeing how the promises of God that came six to seven 700 years before the time of Jesus can be incredibly relevant for our own life as they were fulfilled by Christ. And it's been great. I hope it's really been encouraging to you to see how the pieces of the Bible fit together as we've journeyed through this book together. I know I've had some people come to me and say they've been really encouraged because they've heard some of the promises of God in Isaiah before, but it felt more kind of like a Hallmark card to them. They heard the promises and it sounded good. It felt good, gave them a little comfort maybe in a time of need, but they're really a little unsure about how the promises of God so long ago fit into the bigger story of what God's doing in the world and what that means for our life today. And I hope you've been encouraged in seeing just how relevant these promises that God has made so many years ago to bring beauty out of the brokenness of our lives and the world around us are for us. And he's inviting us into that same story. And I hope that we won't leave the series on Isaiah like a Hallmark card that make us feel good for a moment. But I hope that it invites us into this bigger story in our life today. I hope that Isaiah becomes more like the ice bucket challenge for us than it does a Hallmark card. And here's what I mean by that. I don't know if some of you have uh, heard, but there's been this thing going around the country. It's kind of been all over Facebook and social media called the Ice Bucket Challenge. And basically, if you haven't heard, the Ice Bucket Challenge means one of your friends nominates you to get a big bucket like this filled with ice and water and to dump it on your head. And the reason you're nominated to do that is you take this challenge and you donate to the cause of ALS, which is a really terrible disease, Lou Gehrig's disease that doesn't have a cure. And then you nominate someone else. And it's going to be kind of fun if, if you're on Facebook to see how many people in just our church community have taken the challenge over the last few weeks. And it's really spread all over the place. And I got to be honest with you, when I first started seeing the challenge on Facebook, I was hoping to avoid it altogether. I was hoping I wouldn't be nominated, but I knew it was pretty inevitable. And so when I first got the nomination from one of the awesome middle schoolers in our church, Gabby Wheeland, I tried to act like I wasn't on Facebook. Maybe I was just too busy doing, you know, important pastor stuff, you know, playing for weddings and, you know, meeting with people and everything. And I kind of ignored it. I was a little hard-hearted to the whole thing because really, like, for me, I've never been caught up in following the crowds or in trends. Even though this is a good cause, I just wasn't personally connected to it. And I really don't like cold water, too. The idea of getting a big bucket of cold water poured on me isn't, doesn't sound very much fun. Well, after Gabby nominated me, then two days later, uh, Steve Turnbull nominated me, and he's a busy pastor too, so I really couldn't play it off, and uh, you know, he's busier than I am, and it just so happened that his son William was on his lap, and so that started to change my heart a little bit more, because he really wanted me to do it, and it's hard to say no to a seven-year-old boy, but honestly, I still wasn't moved. I still didn't do it. Until uh, two days after that, I had a gathering of some of the leaders in our church at our house, and we were sharing about the Ice Bucket Challenge, and I was telling them my kind of cynical, hard-hearted feelings about it. And then one of the leaders shared a story that really made me stop and pause. She told me that her dad actually passed away from ALS, 
and her eyes teared up as she told me about it. And that moment, it just stopped me in my tracks. Now I was personally connected. It wasn't something that I was doing out of obligation or forced to do because of the crowds, but that I got to do because I care about my friend. And I share that story with you because it's not a perfect analogy, but I think the promises that we see from God in Isaiah can work similarly to that in our own lives. You see, Isaiah was awakened to the reality that human beings have this disease inside of us that we don't have a cure for. This thing called sin in our hearts is destroying our lives and causing so much of the brokenness and the pain and the destruction in the world around us. And he was awakened by God to the reality of sin and its destructive power and also awakened to God's promise to bring healing, to offer a cure that human beings can never devise in our own wisdom and strength, that God was going to offer a healing cure to heal the human heart, to forgive our sins, and to bring beauty out of the ashes of our lives. And Isaiah wants to awaken us to the reality that God is still offering that cure to you and me, and he wants us to receive it and pass it on to others, to take the challenge to be a part of his beautiful mission and the story that God's writing in the world. And so I hope Isaiah is not just like this Hallmark card that makes us feel good for a moment or even a challenge that we can do and feel good about ourselves, but that it would, it would cause us to change our priorities as we see what God is doing and how big and beautiful his story is. In the passage that we read this morning, there's two short verses in Isaiah 66, I believe help us see how we can take that challenge. If you turn your attention to the scriptures, I want to read it to you again. In Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, it says this, This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. What Isaiah is saying here is quite remarkable. He's saying that to be a part of God's beautiful mission, we don't have to build something grand for him or accomplish something that can prove ourselves to him. He's saying that the heavens are his throne room and the earth this earth that we live on, with all its complexity and wonder, that science continues to explore the, the endless truths about the world that we live in, that's like a footstool to God, the place where he rests his feet. And what he's saying is, if you, we want to be a part of God's beautiful story and this great mission of bringing beauty out of the ashes of the world, he's not looking for us to do something great for him, but to become people who live in right relationship with him, who are humble and contrite and who tremble at his word. And so if this is the kind of relationship he wants to have with us, where we live in the relationship with the king of the universe, where we tremble at his word, I think we need to think about this morning, what does that mean? What does it mean to tremble at God's word? And why does he want that for us? And how can that Help us to be a part of what he's doing to change the world and bring us into God's story today. And when we look at the scriptures, what we see is that people who tremble before God tremble not because they just received like a bucket of cold water on them, but because they saw who he really was. And they were never the same. 
And one of the clearest places that we see this is in the book of Isaiah. Actually, at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, when he receives his call from God, God wrecks Isaiah. He just wakes him up to how big and how great he is. And then he's offering the world this cure, the only hope that we have in this hurting world. And Isaiah's life is never the same. And I want us to go back there and look at that encounter in Isaiah 6. If you want to follow with me in your Bibles, you're welcome to do that. It starts like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, that the, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. In this moment, Isaiah is given a glimpse in the very throne room of God. And it is enormous. It might seem odd to us, but it was glorious to Isaiah. All he could see was the train of the king of heaven and earth's robe filling the temple. And he saw these angels surrounding the throne that seemed to be a bit terrifying. And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah is wrecked. He's ruined. He falls face down and says, I am a man of unclean lips. I do not deserve to be here in the presence of this king. And I think it's helpful for us to unpack this moment a little bit because I, I believe it helps us to see who the God of the Bible really is. In our popular culture, sometimes when we hear about angels and, and God, it seems like maybe cuddly teddy bears in the sky flying around with wings, you know? And God maybe seems like a Morgan Freeman character, maybe like us, but uh, a, a little wiser or something. Or maybe God seems like Barney. He's kind of big and cuddly and saying something like, I love you, you love me. We're one big happy family. You know, and, and it's just, it's really happy. It's really happy. And, and I think there's some, some good there. But what we see in the scriptures is that the God of the Bible is holy and he's dangerous. The angels that surround his throne, the seraphim, are literally translated as the fiery or burning ones. And we're not sure exactly what it, it means in this passage that they were kind of, they were smoking. But it might be that they were just radiating with so much light that all he could see was smoke. Or maybe it refers to their ability to purify uh, us to be able to be in God's presence. But when he saw the seraphim yelling, holy, 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 what was clear is that they were testifying to the majesty and the glory and the greatness and the awesomeness of who God is. And Isaiah was wrecked. He knew he didn't belong there and he didn't deserve to be there. 
And when we think about what it means for God to be holy, holy is not a word that we use very much in our culture anymore. But in the Bible, the word holy was the most basic truth about God. God was completely other and different and set apart than us as human beings. And to enter into his presence was a bit dangerous. And angels were like mediators or guardians of his, his presence. It was kind of like coming in contact with fire. Fire is an awesome thing. It can help us, but it's also something to respect. This last week, uh, I was at a party with some high schoolers, and some of you who are sitting on this side of the room might notice I have uh, a scar on my face right here. And if you're not, I do have a scar over here on my face. And people were asking me what happened. And I was at this party with high schoolers, and we had a fire pit, and we were having s'mores. And we were putting the s'mores on the crackers. I was trying to help this student. And all of a sudden, I got whacked in the face with one of those metal uh, pokers that you put the marshmallow on the end of it. And it just singed my face immediately. I mean, literally, it just hit me for like two seconds. And all I said was, ah! And when I told my kids about it, they said, Daddy, you screamed like a little girl, didn't you? <laughs> I said, yeah, I, I did. <laughs> because it hurts. So he touched with a fire, it burns. And the people of Israel, they knew that God was a holy God. And when the priest entered into the Holy of Holies, they, he entered into the Holy of Holies in the temple with a rope around his foot. So in case he died, they could pull him out and no one else would have to go in after him. There was a reverence and an awe and a respect for who God was. He was holy, the king of heaven and earth. And so when Isaiah is, stands before the king, he's wrecked. He sees who God really is. And he knows he's a man of unclean lips. That this problem that's out there in the world that's causing brokenness and destruction is also true in his own heart. Later in the book of Isaiah, he actually says that all of our good deeds are, are just like filthy rags before this holy God. That all, none of us are righteous. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We, we all are unworthy to stand in his presence. And I have a friend that recently wrote a book, I have a friend that I went to seminary with the first time in, in California, and he wrote this book called Yawning, is for Yawning at Tigers. And I really like this book. I read it last winter. And in the book, he, he shares a story that the book is named after about this little town in Ohio where there's a zoo and people go to the zoo all the time and they go by tigers and lions and bears, oh my. And they're really kind of bored by it because it's so familiar to them and they're yawning at these tigers. But one day, the zoo is open and these animals are let loose. And then they realize who they're walking by all the time. Who they were in relationship with. And, and he, he describes, this is an analogy for how he's experienced and he laments his experience in church has often made it seem like God is caged up and we're yawning at him like a tiger. He says this, But for the most part, we neither tremble in fear nor thrill with excitement at the prospect of encountering this wild deity. Instead, our church experiences are largely, are largely predictable and sedate. Our spiritual lives are devoid of passion. Yes, we believe, but often our knowledge of God is dry and cerebral. We give mental assents to truths that should leave us shaking. Even when we see evidence of God in our midst, when we glimpse him in his holiness, we're more likely to yawn than yell. Somehow we've succeeded in making the strange ordinary. We walk by tigers without looking twice. Why are we so anesthetized? 
What's behind our lack of reverence, fear, and awe? I think it's simple. We've forgotten how big God is. And what Isaiah found in this moment is that this big God that he wasn't worthy to stand in the presence of invited him there. And that his angels, when he singed them, when the angels singe him with this coal, are purifying his sins so he can be in God's presence and be his messenger to awaken us to the reality that we have this thing of sin inside of us that's destroying us and causing so much brokenness in the world. And he wants to awaken us that we can receive the cure of the promise of God to heal us from the inside and to pass that cure on to others. And the thing is, when we look at the scriptures, this experience wasn't just true for Isaiah, but we see the same thing in the New Testament. There are a couple moments that I want to take you to briefly in the life of Jesus and his disciples where we see the same response as they see how big God is and who they are in relationship with. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 17. If you want to follow in your Bibles, you can do that with me or you can listen to the words of Scripture. In Matthew 17, here's how the, the encounter begins. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now this moment is a moment that's known as the transfiguration. It's an amazing moment in the life of Jesus with his disciples. You see, while Jesus walked the earth, he emptied himself of his divine appearance. He was fully human. And throughout most of his life on earth, he's revealing more and more of who he is to the disciples, and they're often confused about it. They think he's at least a prophet from God, or maybe hoping he's the Messiah that's going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel. But they just don't see how big he is until this moment. It's in this moment when Jesus is transfigured. He's literally changed before them. His clothes transformed to be blazing white and his face is shining like the sun. He gives them a glimpse of the glory that he had before the creation of the earth and the glory that he now has where he's ascended from earth to heaven to be at the right hand of the throne of God. And when they see him, they think it is amazing. It is good. And then they hear the voice of God out of a cloud say, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when they experience the presence of God and they realize this isn't just a prophet, they're in the presence of the God, the king of heaven and earth, they fall face down and they tremble. But here is what the amazing thing is, what we see next. Here's what Jesus does. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Jesus comes to them in the midst of their fear and their trembling, and he puts his hand on their back and says, I want you to be here. 
the king of heaven and earth has sent me. He's not sending angels anymore. He's not sending prophets. He's not just giving us a law that we can never measure up to. He sent his son and he is God and he's inviting us in the very presence of the king of heaven and earth. When they looked up, they could only see Jesus. I imagine just smiling at them, his favor resting upon them, wanting them to know that this new era in God's story had begun where he was inviting people directly into the presence of God, where they could not only tremble in fear, but live. And Jesus is showing them in this moment how great and how big and how awesome he is, so they will be amazed that he wants to be in relationship with them, and he wants to be in relationship with you and me today. Because Jesus wants to be transfigured for each one of us where we see how big he is and that changes our hearts and our lives that we would never be the same again. And the next moment that I want to take you to is a moment that's not on this mountaintop experience, but is down in the midst of ordinary life when Jesus called his first disciples. I think we see a very similar thing there. This is in Luke chapter 5. And here's what happens. It says, One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. You see, in this moment, when Jesus first came to the disciples, they weren't disciples yet, they were fishermen. They were just going about their ordinary life, doing what they knew how to do to put food on the table. What they had been taught was normal. And they had been fishing all night and hadn't caught anything. And Jesus shows up and he's teaching about the kingdom of God. And they don't really seem to be interested at this point. They're just cleaning their nets. Or maybe they're just too busy to notice that he was right there. But he wanted them to see that God was including ordinary people like these fishermen in his plan. So he gets into their boat, and here's what happens next. When he had finished speaking to the crowds, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Well, here's where Jesus starts messing with Peter a little bit. And coming into his ordinary life, into what's normal for him, what he's an expert on, and saying, you know what? I see how you're frustrated and how you've worked all night and you haven't caught anything. I see where maybe you even feel like a failure. And I'm going to give you a new way. I want to show you what life is like listening to me as your king, where you get off the throne and you allow me to be on the throne. And here's what happens next. Peter says, Because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. 
And Peter has the same response as Isaiah when he sees how big Jesus is. He falls trembling, doesn't think he's worthy to be there, doesn't understand why he's being invited into this moment. But Jesus is insistent. He's come to call ordinary people to be a part of this beautiful mission of teaching us to stop trying to put our way and our agenda and our will first, but to listen to him, to cast our nets on the other side. And as we learn to live our life this way, Jesus promises that we'll become fishers of people, that we'll become people that draw others into the kingdom of God, out of the chaotic waters of the world. And this invitation wasn't just offered to the people so long ago. This is an invitation offered to you and me today. And over the next few weeks, Pastor Steve is going to be unpacking how God is leading us forward into the same mission in our lives in greater ways. And I hope you won't miss our vision series over the next four weeks as we'll be exploring how we can grow as a community, becoming people that listen to the King and become fishers of men, drawing others to God with our lives. Before we go there, I believe this morning, God, he just wants us to stop and pause and see who he is. Because when we see God for who he is, it changes everything for us. When we see that the king of heaven and earth has come to invite us into a relationship with him, to become a part of his story, the story that he has been writing for ages and generations and has passed down to us today, we can never be the same. When we see God for who he is, he begins to melt away our fear. He begins to show us that we don't have to try to control our lives and live as ourselves on the throne as the king, but we can trust that he is on the king and his throne room is the heavens and his footstool is the earth. And we can rest in knowing that he is the king who's come to invite us into his presence. And when we see God for who he is, that begins to melt away our fear. And I don't know about you, but that's something I struggle with. I struggle with feeling like I have a lot of pressure inside. And sometimes it gets the best of me. Things get overwhelming or I feel out of control and I have to control it and manage it. And that can just become so life-stealing and life-taking. When I turn my eyes to see the king of heaven and earth, it begins to do something different in me, to melt away that fear, to find a power that I don't have on my own. Just this summer, I got to go to an amazing church conference in California with Chris and Danielle and some other friends that I've made in church around the country. And we had this worship experience where I came in, I really felt, you guys probably noticed, I, I enjoy singing and I, I really love Jesus, so I, I sometimes like to be very expressive in the way I worship. But this time, um, I, I came in, I felt like God was telling me just to sit down and be quiet. And when I sat there, and just let the music, there was worship for about a half an hour, just kind of washed over me. And I began to take my eyes off myself and put them on the king. It was like this brick of pressure in my stomach that I didn't even know was there just started melting away. And just started coming out like literally through my eyes. I wasn't weeping or anything, but water was just coming out. And I just felt so at peace because God was melting my fear away. When we see God for who he is, it allows us to be honest and to bring our humble confession to him. To know that Jesus has come to offer his life for us. 
to forgive us of our sins and to cure us of the disease that we have inside. We don't have to pretend that it's not there. We can bring it right to Jesus. And I wonder how that would change our experience of Christian community if we became even more safe people that helped each other to be honest about the brokenness that's inside and to bring that to Jesus to find the healing that only he can provide. So when we see God for who he is, we see that he has more for us than what we can create for ourselves. That he has this catch to offer us. When we listen to him and cast our nets on the other side, that where we're stuck in failure and frustration and fatigue, he wants to bring joy and peace and love and purpose into our life. He's right here. We don't have to go to a mountain in Jerusalem to find him. We don't have to be in the throne room that Isaiah was today. Jesus is on the throne of heaven and earth, and he invites you and I to come to him and to see who he is so we'll never be the same again. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for who you are. And Lord, I pray that we could look into your eyes this morning and see you smiling at us. We'd see how big and how great and how powerful you are, and yet see you looking at us with love. And Lord, I pray that as we see you, that you'll call us out. You'll call us out to live for more, to step out on the water with you, to see you do more in our lives and in our community than we could ever ask or imagine. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.